Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Pakina Maimer, and you're listening to Working Scientists in Nature Careers podcast. The second episode in this six-part series about science communication is a deep dive into how to counter misinformation around COVID-19, one of the most challenging public health crises in recent memory. In this episode, I talk to scientists, doctors, and journalists about the challenges facing them on this new front line for science communication. We chat about how they share information covering the latest research and tackle fake news if they come across it. How well do they think the science of the coronavirus was communicated during the past couple of months? The interviews in this episode were all recorded in late March and early April. Ron Daniels is a UK intensive care doctor who uses video and Twitter to tell people about the best practices around the new coronavirus. Ron's first video explains why doctors ventilate COVID-19 patients on their stomachs instead of their backs. In just a few hours, the 1 minute 16 seconds video garnered thousands of views and lots of engagement. People were coming to me, for example, saying, well, why am I seeing on television all of these people being ventilated, lying prone, lying on their abdomens? And there's a simple answer for that, and it's straightforward physiology. So I decided to create some content that simply communicated that and the rationale for that in a way that was accessible to non-health professionals. That sort of content is filling knowledge gaps. There's a thirst for it, and it's completely understandable why. People want to know. They want to make sensible and informed decisions, and with very filtered information coming from governments, making informed decisions can be challenging. Ron's first video answered a question that was being asked repeatedly on social media. It focused on just that one question. He has lots of clinical expertise and first-hand experience. And in the video, he uses a simple drawing on a white paper board to break it all down. He doesn't fall back on complex terms. He does not politicize his message. And he also has great timing. His content landed at a point in time where it feels like the entire world needs answers. Hearsay, speculation, and fake news are so rampant that in February, the World Health Organization talked about, and I quote, fighting an infodemic. Here is Ron again. What we find in the health professions, as well as in other scientific disciplines, is that when a crisis like this occurs, and we, we have to be mindful that as of the last several months, we're in a global pandemic of unprecedented proportion that no scientist, no doctor has had to deal with in their lifetime. 
And what tends to result from that is we tend to look to the professional societies and to governments to provide information to the public. And the problem with that is that's then very controlled flow of information. And the primary driver of that flow is designed to avoid panic. It's designed to instill calm, to ensure that the public behave in a certain way. We then have at the opposite end a group of often junior health professionals who create inflammatory content, often posted on social media. And an example might be, I've been asked to work and assess patients with COVID-19 without my appropriate personal protective equipment. And that's also wrong because it might be that they simply haven't looked in the right place for their PPE. It might be that it's the local supply chain rather than government supply chain, which is at fault. And it's critical that they shouldn't be working without appropriate PPE, but the public can get the wrong message. The public can hear the government isn't providing PPE. And the reality is that's not always the case. So the balance has to be somewhere in the middle. The balance has to be, look, we've got a problem here. It's right that you should be fearful of this problem, but this is the way in which we're going to try to cope. So I see the role of clinicians like me, social media persons, to create the information in a balanced way to fill that knowledge gap. Data scientists are issuing best and worst case predictions as fast as the situation unfolds. We're already being warned of a possible second wave if we stop self-isolating too soon. So how did we get here? I decided to pick Ron's brain. COVID-19-related news and information have been overwhelming, but also fraught with controversy. Take masks, for instance, and whether they should be worn or not. There are PCR tests, antibody tests, and point-of-care tests. And we still don't seem to have definitive answers on what they actually tell us. If we were to look back at the past few weeks, how well do you think the conversation around the pandemic has been handled? So again, the, the, the natural... Um, attitude of organizations like the CDC, like the Department for Health and Social Care in the UK, like the WHO, is cautious. It's risk averse. It's about not creating mass panic. And of course, that's important and correct. But what they're less good at is admitting where the knowledge ga gaps exist. And you mentioned testing, for example. We know that the antigen testing, the test that says whether or not you have COVID-19 right now, is imperfect. That hasn't been acknowledged until very recently by many governments. In the UK, for example, there was a resistance initially to the WHO's call to the fact that testing is the only way that we can uh, protect ourselves from the spread of this virus, that we have to do, um, uh, we have to identify contacts, we have to isolate, we have to test. The government in the UK adopted that strategy really quite late in the game, then started to learn that there wasn't mass availability of testing, that there was a lack of certain reagents to allow us to test robustly, and has yet to acknowledge to the public that the antigen testing is only around 72% sensitive. So if an individual has the test and it's negative, there's still not quite but nearly a one in three chance that they have in fact been infected with the virus. Now, the public need that information. The public deserve that information because they can. the public aren't stupid. They can use that information to make informed choices. And again, for me, it just comes back to balance. We have to communicate with the, pub, with the public in a way in which they can understand, yes, but we have to stop treating them like children and admit where we've got knowledge gaps, admit where we've got capacity problems, and to state that we all need to work together to address those issues.
I was wondering if you have some advice for doctors who are not on the front line on how to handle questions from the public or how to talk to the public. And would you agree right now with the idea that those with real expertise on viruses or public health may have some sort of moral obligation to communicate the right information about their work? I think health professionals, epidemiologists, any scientists who have value to add in this space do indeed have a moral duty to communicate that through their mechanisms to the public. I think they sometimes feel constrained and they might feel constrained by their own healthcare organisation, by their own government advising that they don't communicate to the public. But what those organisations don't want communicating is the sensationalist stuff, the inflammatory stuff. And it's not right that we should disseminate that. Any sensible health professional, any sensible scientist who has value to add in a balanced, considered manner that is designed not to create panic, but to acknowledge where gaps exist, has a duty to communicate that to the public in an accessible language. This is not about profile. This is not about gaining followers or scoring points. This is usually should not be about academic argument. This should be around, I've appraised the evidence, I have a level of expertise, here's my opinion, and here's what I think you, as a member of the public, should do with that information. So what are some of the social media platforms that you think doctors and experts can use? You know, is it Twitter? Is it Instagram, Facebook? What do you personally prefer in terms of social media platforms? Or what would you say is the most effective platform to amplify a message? So the, the platforms are all very different. I mean, Twitter is a great mass broadcast platform. There is a degree of engagement with Twitter, of course, but it's good for broadcasting. It's good to get an amplified message out to a large number of people in a very short period of time. Conversely, we have to understand that there are different market segments and the, the 20-somethings of this world and the teens of this world are not very active on Twitter and they prefer Instagram. And some of us older people might view Instagram as the way to showcase a perfect version of your life, but it is a way to access a different demographic. And the important thing with COVID-19 is, as we all know, we are seeing young people dying from this condition. And it seems to be that when very young people are dying, we, we heard the tragic story of the teenage girl in France, for example, that they're arriving at healthcare in extremists. They're already critically ill. They've been lying at home for many days already critically ill. And it's important that we reach out to those people via platforms like Instagram, not only to communicate that they are also at risk, but also to communicate that if a loved one tells them that their lips look a bit blue or their fingertips look a little bit blue, that they need to take that very seriously because they're arriving in hospital with very low oxygen levels. And that must have been the case before they got to hospital. So I think we need to use platforms in the ways for which they're designed. Facebook is more around friendship and more about regionalization. And that's important to communicate for countries that have a regional healthcare delivery. It's less relevant in the UK. It's about understanding what each platform is for, the market segment, the demographic that use that platform, and how we appropriate the right message for that individual market segment. The virus seems to be testing everyone's ability to sift out the truth in this deluge of information. My next guest, Sandra Galea, is an epidemiologist, author, and dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health. I was curious to know what he thought the role researchers and people like him can play. 
I think I've always felt that um, in uh, in universities, uh, as academics, we have three roles. Uh, number one, to generate scholarship and science. Uh, number two, to teach that science and scholarship to our students. And uh, number three, to translate that science, to make sure that that science and scholarship is accessible and available and that uh, it is uh, we communicate as well as possible to the general public. Both Sandro and Ron believe that researchers, especially ones committed to coronavirus research, should be more open about their work. Well, as long as they speak for themselves and not for the entire faculty or the school they're part of, he tells me. Galea is outspoken on his own social media and takes part in virtual events centered around COVID-19 outreach. So, Dean Galea, are you asking faculty members and other professors to come forward and engage with the public more, or is it just a personal effort in your capacity as the Dean of Boston School of Public Health? We encourage faculty who wish to engage in translation. We have created structures that help facilitate that through, um, for example, we created, uh, we've had now for five years a... um, a digital space called Public Health Post, which is designed explicitly to translate the ideas of public health. And it's something which we support from school funds, which is quite unusual for schools of public health. So we not only have encouraged people and signal that we are supportive of it, we've also created structures that can facilitate that. But we do not ask it. I, I think uh, within our environment, we very much prize sort of faculty autonomy and faculty choosing how to carve their own path. And if some of these faculty members or instructors or professors come to you for advice or tips on where to start if they haven't been doing this before and they want to take this opportunity to engage with the public, what kind of directives would you give? I think we are scientists who, um, in, in our case, we are our metier is population health science, and we should come from a place of science. Our role is to produce the science and to communicate the science and to communicate the implications of that science for decisions we make as a society. So I very much encourage us all, and I try to hold myself to the standard very firmly, that um, what we communicate out should be based in science and in evidence and fact. And But our job is to help the world see how we can bridge that science to the very real practical decisions that the world has to make in order to create a healthier world and a healthier context. So I suppose my fundamental advice is to start from the science. Now, beyond that, there's, of course, very pragmatic um, pieces of advice, which is, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to write? Are you going to communicate um, in voice through things like podcasts? Are you going to try to communicate live on camera? I think different people have different um, aptitudes. They're more comfortable with different fora. And I would encourage anybody interested to make sure that they engage with their professionals in their institution who can help them do that. So how is science communication changing in response to the pandemic? We're entering in a new era, and this is, we need a new playbook for um, communicating science in a time of uncertainty and for how policy can be informed by uncertain science. And, and we have not done that well in this time. And in my estimation, it has been this mismatch between what we do not know and our capacity to communicate what we do not know and our capacity to have what we do not know, inform policy that has to be made anyway. And, and, and those have been glaring. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gaps in my assessment. You're listening to Working Scientist. There is no blueprint on how to deal with the current outbreak. It's happening in a world that is at once physically distancing and intimately connected through the internet and social media. A lot of folks, uh, especially scientists probably who are looking into viruses, never maybe anticipated being part of a larger conversation about public policy. I think of myself, my role is I'm standing in for the public and I'm going to ask stupid questions. <laughs> I, I think that for the most part, looking at the broad big picture, I think journalists and scientists in general have done a reasonably good job of trying to focus on the good information and counter the bad information. And it's a hard job to do. These are the voices of my next guests. They're all-seasoned journalists handling coverage of the current pandemic. In a time like this, their plates are full, and they do wear many hats. They're reporters, storytellers, fact-checkers, and mythbusters. Some use their social platforms as well as their published work to raise awareness. Some have handled crisis reporting before, perhaps not at this scale, but it's never been easy. Questions arise about how they should navigate these roles and what boundaries journalists and communicators should draw between personal sentiments, their own anxiety about the virus, and the work that they do. And that's exactly what I asked them about in the next segment. I would actually challenge your framing um, because you say that I play multiple roles in addition to being a journalist, I would argue all of those roles fall under journalists. To me, to be a journalist means to be a storyteller. It means to be a fact checker. It means to be an educator. It means to be speaking up when you see things that are going wrong. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're promoting your opinion. That was the voice of Tara Haley. She's a book author, educator, and a prolific health journalist. Haley is ever-present on social media, too. She doesn't shy away from engaging followers in deep and long-running discussions on public health, including thorny issues like vaccines, those supposed to them, as well as false science. I asked Tara if there is a line to draw between being a journalist who believes in science and evidence and being an activist who promotes science. There are activist journalists, and I think that's fine. There's a place for them. But that is not being a journalist. It is a different type of journalist. It's more like being an op-ed writer or being a columnist. And I don't, I mean, it is a form of journalism, but it's different from being sort of your, you know, I am reporting day-to-day journalist. Um, and, and I think that needs to be, there needs to be an important line drawn there between I am a journalist whose entire purpose is sharing my opinion and trying to back it up versus I am a journalist who is calling attention to things that are happening in the world. I am informing you. I am telling you stories. I am fact checking. I am educating you. I am teaching. I am explaining. To me, all of those fall under journalism. And and I may, you know, others may disagree with me on that, but I see my role as a fact checker slash storyteller slash educator slash explainer slash informer as all being a good health and science journalist. The media has been playing different roles during the coronavirus pandemic, from putting out explainers to investigative pieces, from peddling opinions to staying neutral. Bad articles and advice get as much traction as good fact-based articles and good advice, sometimes even more. We keep mentioning misinformation. Do you think that we, as journalists and communicators, handle coronavirus coverage in a graceful manner? 
I think journalists and scientists in general have done a reasonably good job of trying to focus on the good information and counter the bad information. And it's a hard job to do. Um, it's, it's very easy to criticize how well journalists address misinformation. It's really hard to do it well, really hard. For one thing, you have to figure out what the misinformation is, right? What, what is actually false here? Then you have to decide which information, misinformation do I address? Um, and actually, well, let me back up. You have to figure out what the misinformation is. Then you have to distinguish between misinformation and disinformation. They're not the same thing. Misinformation is just that. It's information that's not correct. And usually it's not necessarily with an agenda. Um, or it might be with an agenda, but it, it's it, the information itself is fairly neutral. Disinformation is essentially propaganda. It's it's an intentional attempt to obfuscate the truth or to mislead someone. And there is an agenda attached and they're different things. And both of them proliferate in any kind of emergency and especially in public health emergencies. You have to decide what's worth covering or talking about, she says. There's a, a weird psychological effect you have to worry about in covering misinformation, which is that the more you repeat something, the more it sinks into people's brains. So you can actually end up doing having the opposite effect that you want by repeating things that don't need to be repeated um a good example mm. might be the bat soup idea which by virtue of my even bringing it up is a bad thing to do but there was this idea that supposedly eating bat soup is what led you know this virus to get into the first person and become patient zero and it's a small enough if this makes sense it's a small enough piece of misinformation that there aren't going to be huge numbers of people already jumping on that bandwagon and believing it and promulgating it. So if you give it oxygen, you might be doing a disservice to people if you write a, a whole article about bat soup. Now, should you include it in a roundup of misconceptions? You ha it's a judgment call. You kind of have to look. Um, you know, you have to see how likely is it that people are going to believe this? Um, how likely is it that that's going to cause harm? How easily can I dispense with this misinformation in a way that people that will, will make sense to people? And how will I deal with the fact that there are going to be people who do not believe me no matter what? All of those things are going into your calculation of how to address that. How do we balance it out then? Inform people, but not from a place of absolute certainty. I think you just have to be honest. And that's one of the things, honestly, that's one of the reasons I have a problem with people who aren't science health journalists writing too much about this without having training for it. They need to understand that the entire realm of science, science is in a way the study of uncertainty. Like the entire base of science is uncertainty. That is what it is. It's a quest for knowledge. It's a seeking of knowledge. If you had the knowledge, then you wouldn't be seeking it. Honesty seems to be the key word here for scientists, journalists, and mass communicators. The advice is don't hold back information or try and coddle the public. Simplify the message without falling into the trap of oversimplifying it, glossing over doubts, or miscommunicating how science itself works. Essentially, you have to walk a tightrope. Roxanne Hamsi is a science journalist with tons of bylines in publications like The New York Times, Nature, Wired, and The Economist. She also spent years as an editor in science journals. When we talked back in March, Roxanne shared with me some insights on how she thinks scientists and researchers can be most helpful during this time. I think it's an interesting question, and I think that a lot of folks, uh, especially scientists probably who are looking into viruses, never 
maybe anticipated being part of a larger conversation about public policy to the extent that we're in now? Because I, I don't think that folks focused on science necessarily um, spend their days thinking about the whole network in terms of how the economy is affected, you know, anything from the Olympics potentially being canceled. I mean, these aren't things that people necessarily, I would imagine, go into the lab every day thinking about until now, right? So we're in a different place. And I don't want to say something like, you know, as a journalist sitting on the sidelines that scientists should, you know, ramp up their efforts a thousand percent or, you know, go into the lab when they might have people at home that they need to take care of. So I think everyone has to make an individual decision. But at the same time, I do think that for those of folks, for those folks who are able to make time available to either, um, you know, run crucial experiments or even just to explain to their family or a wider social network a bit about why certain approaches might or might not work. I asked her the same question that I asked Ron about how obliged scientists or doctors are to be part of the ongoing conversation about the new coronavirus. Do scientists face a choice about whether or not to communicate? Sometime in, in January or February, I came back after like going out on a Friday night and I, I logged on to Twitter and I spent like two hours or so just like battling misinformation, which I've never done. I don't usually go on Twitter at night. I, I've been on social media like a thousand million times more than I usually am. And I am, I think, personally out of an obligation because I just happen to have reported and edited a lot of stories on viruses in the last, I don't know, decade or so or more. And so I feel some kind of personal obligation to try to disseminate what I know, which is like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what virologists know, right? I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm not a scientist. But I do feel that I'm working this hard right now because I feel a sense of obligation to, um, to share what I, what I know or what I think, um, even if it might not be perfect. I do feel that, you know, I've attended enough vi virology meetings that I've, I've got to share some of that. So I, again, I don't want to oblige anyone to do anything because we are living in times where, you know, you might be the top virologist in your field, but if your spouse has asthma and, is sick right now, like you've got to take care of your family. So I'm not, I'm not going to tell people where to put their time. That said, I do think that if, if folks have the time, there's never been a more urgent time than now to communicate your science. That I will say. Now, to be a little more practical, let's say you're a researcher or a scientist that does have a message or a story for the public, but you'd like to do it in a more structured way. Perhaps you need to package your information within a certain context, and you need the credibility of a major outlet to amplify your voice. You may be wondering, beyond social media, where else can you get your voice across? Well, there are many journals and magazines who accept commentaries from specialists and experts, including journals like Nature and Science, websites like The Conversation, or opinion sections within local and national newspapers, like the Boston Globe's Ideas section. I am the editor of the Ideas section at the Boston Globe, and the Ideas section is a Sunday opinion section. So my role really is to step back and do analysis and provide context for our readers. And it's it's nice to be outside of um, the daily fray. As you know, things are changing daily, hourly. So there are there are people in our newsroom who they spend their time um, you know, chasing down the latest developments, tracking the numbers, and 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 that sort of thing. But my job is really to um, put 
put all of the week's happenings in bigger context and help our readers understand and make sense of it. But also because uh, my depart I live in the opinion section, we are able to solicit opinions and ideas from uh, scientists and different experts and, and publish those thoughts that are maybe we're la- allowing expert voices to be heard uh, directly without filtering, without being in a story, and they can address the public uh, that way. So we do a lot of op-eds. We've had some on you know, whether or not you should wear masks, as you said. Um, some of our most popular stories have been about, you know, different experts weighing in on, on the, the role of masks. Uh, so, so that's what we, that's what I do. That was Anika Butler, editor of Ideas at the Boston Globe, which runs commentaries and opinion columns. I asked Anika how she works with researchers who are less used to writing articles for mass consumption and more used to writing academic jargon-heavy literature for peers? Um, That's a great question. Uh, As you point out, academic writing and journalistic writing are completely different animals. And so I think first, one, you have to embrace that and understand that. And when I'm working with experts or researchers or people who are more in academia or in practice and not journalists, the way that I read their work is that I I think of myself, my role is I'm standing in for the public and I'm going to ask stupid questions. (laughs) And it's not my job to um, understand everything and to to wrap my head around it. So if an editor is asking you, okay, I just don't get this, but it's perfectly clear to you when you wrote it, then, you know, understand that where the editor is coming from, that they're trying to help your work be understood by just the average everyday person. And I mean, that's really in a crisis like this, that's really the ultimate goal is so that everybody in the public can understand what's happening and understand the information. So how do you do that? Um, It can be challenging if you're not used to that kind of writing. But one way to think about it is though you're having a conversation and you're explaining to your next door neighbor or um, your mailman or anyone that you know, but here's what's happening. And so think about it that way. And I've I've seen some people do tweet threads or write medium posts. And those, I feel people are more able to write conversationally. And and those are very successful. However, there are so many medium posts, there's so many tweet threads. And when you don't know who the person is writing it, it can be hard to um, maybe take it as an expert opinion. So I think the best thing to do still as people are still relying on the mainstream media, is to take your voice to a mainstream outlet if you can. And I know every day my inbox is full of um, submissions and ideas from people who are experts and academics and also people who are on the front lines of healthcare. And that's where we're getting a lot of our information from, and whether it's you know writing a story, incorporating a lot of points of view, or asking people to write their own opinion, write op-eds and working with them to frame that. So, so I think that's, um, you know, reaching out to the media is good, but also if you, if you do it on your own, just again, think about it as, as a conversation. Writing or communicating science in whatever form is a skill that does need a lot of practice. But there are a lot of perks to having a background rooted in science. For one, scientists take in center stage now, and many members of the public are turning to it for answers and even comfort. Some of the biggest voices in science journalism and communication out there have begun their journeys in the lab. And in the next episode of this podcast, we talk to some of them. But that's a conversation for another time. I hope you enjoyed the special episode about handling communication in the time of coronavirus. Next week, we get into the weeds of what it means to be a science writer, where to draw inspiration or find ideas, and how to hone your craft. Thank you for listening. I'm Pakina Meyerberg.